the other side for, for the particularly for uh, injured workers who, who've lost limbs they will um come and ask the company say well let you could i have an artificial limb please um could you could you either pay for one or manufacture one in your workshops and again some of the railway companies the bigger railway companies had um workshops within their railway factories that that were dedicated to making artificial limbs. Hello, I'm Natalie from Genealogy Stories and welcome to Twice Removed, the show where we talk about everything history related. I'd like to welcome my guest today, Mike Aspesta from the University of Portsmouth, co-lead on the Railway Work, Life and Death uh, project, which is so kindly put behind you so that I could just read it without messing up my lines there. Hi Mike, oh, how are you today? <laughs> hi Natalie, I'm fine thanks, and yourself? I'm good thank you, excited to ask you all about railways. <laughs> well it's, it's great to be here and I'm you know hopefully we'll share some of the, the excitement. Brilliant. Okay so can you tell me when railways first started being used in um, in the UK sort of in earnest and um, when they were kind of yes. considered established and people were using them every day? Sure. So the kind of, there are all sorts of milestones that people, uh, particularly railway historians, look at in terms of what we now understand as railways. So mainline railways with steam traction and later uh, diesel and electric traction. Um, so 1825, so we're coming up for a, a big centenary or the bicentenary of the Stockton and Darlington Railway. Um, but really 1830s is when it all starts kicking off and you get a huge railway building um that's, that's done by private companies so you end up with kind of higgledy piggledy lines going hither and thither lots of different companies serving the same sort of place as competition uh and again then increasing use as you get into the deeper into the 1830s and really the 1840s uh, when it starts to become if not commonplace and then there, there are lots and lots of people using the railways for by sending goods but also uh, for passenger travel as well Oh, so that's that sort of when they're beginning to use it for, you know, commuting to work, for example. Yeah, I think the 1840s are a really key, key phase. By that time, you've got much, you know, enough of the system connected and, and you can get more places that it does become possible to, to go travel further. And as you say, then there's a kind of regularity of services, particularly into the major urban areas. Um, so Birmingham, Manchester, Newcastle, London, Glasgow, Edinburgh, Cardiff. You know, the, the big locations um, for, for that being you know, urbanised, industrialised. Okay. And, and what kind of effect did that um, have upon the labour market in terms of you've got this this new technology that obviously requires a lot of workers to to run and maintain and um, create new lines. And so it's what kind of effect did that have? Yeah, absolutely. So kind of the, the classic thing that people think about is uh, is a shift into urban spaces. Uh, obviously not just the railways you've got to have jobs to go to so they're kind of they're a facilitator in that um, and the impact that has on the agricultural labour market which yeah there is there is definitely an impact there I think perhaps people overstate it at times you know there's, there's this kind of great idea about the industrial revolution which we might question anyway but that that's uh, it suddenly sees a kind of mass change you suddenly shift from uh, basically agricultural work to uh, urban work and that that really isn't the case you know the, the agricultural professions continue for a, a very long time um, uh, you know it, it's a key part of the labour market for some time so the railways definitely have an impact and in terms of facilitating other forms of work uh, but also in terms of the, the railways themselves yeah they're a big employer they, they become one of the UK's largest employers um, of, of people, men and women. Um, people tend to think about the, the, the men more so than the women, but women were employed on the railways from the outset in various capacities. So yeah, there's, there's, a, there's an impact, uh, hard to quantify, but there's definitely an impact. Okay, oh, so what, what kind of jobs were there on the railway? Can you give a, a, um, some idea of the range of jobs? Mm, absolutely, well, fairly much everything, uh, it seems. <laughs> the railways were, again, really interesting kind of, companies because the bigger companies certainly did pretty much everything themselves so they would make fairly much anything that they they used um, and it would all be branded so right from you know, the pencils up to the engines and the carriages the, and the stations and the, the kind of the big things that we see and you need people to do that so you need people to, to make the stuff so you have people working in iron foundries uh, that the com railway companies build so Swindon for example would be a classic example 
of a, a new location that comes about or kind of it was already there but really small and a huge expansion because the great western railway um, and we see others like that crew would be another example with the london northwestern railway um, so these big big works that are producing the everything um, but then you need you, know, you need people to operate it so you need the people who are laying the tracks maintaining the tracks you need people who are uh, driving the engines you need the guards on the trains whether passenger or goods trains you need staff at the stations you've got hotels in due course uh, as time goes on you get uh, the railways are well they're big um, big operators of horse and carts because you need to get goods particularly to or from the station um, so yeah there's all sorts going on and um, uh, the the 19 in the into the 20th century you get uh, motor transport you get shipping concerns in the 1930s they start getting their hand in with uh, air traffic as well so you know, fairly much everything it's really quite unusual kind of unusual ways but yeah that's a huge huge variation of jobs when you think about it right the toddler is kicking off already so i am going to get dad to pull her out so i'll just pause a second <laughs> um <laughs> No, that is a, when you think about it like that, that is a huge, huge variation of, of, of jobs that you could have. And did, did pay, um, did sort of pay conditions, um, the roles, did they vary across the different private companies? Did, was there sort of competition there? Uh, yeah, so there was, there was some, uh, some labour market competition within the railway companies. Again, one of, one of the other kind of, slightly tangential, is that you, you start to get people moving overseas as well, taking their, their railway knowledge and experience. Um, particularly to places like South America, where the railways are being constructed later, so and the the expertise and skills are well sought after, um, often at a higher level, kind of more uh, managerial sorts of, of roles. But actually, you know, the, the construction work and knowing how to drive a steam engine as yeah. well. So you, you get this kind of really interesting mobility of people, both internally and uh, over uh, over national boundaries as well. It's interesting how some of those roles have um, have have kind of gone into a kind of like a cultural history. I was just thinking as you were talking about um, about navvies. So I just I remember my mum when I was a child, if I was sort of eating whilst walking around, she'd either say you're not in the army or she'd say you're not a navvy. Um, so, <laughs> so sit yeah, down. What should we sit? Um, and yeah. I just I just it just occurred to me that somebody listening might not know what a navy is. Could you could you explain what a navy is? Yeah, sure. So these are the, the navigators, shortened to navvies, um, that were they were employed initially to build the canals, um, to the navigations again. Uh, and then when we'd shifted from canal building uh, into railway building, they were again they had the right skills. So again, the right skills being basically hard work um because it was a hard a hard life um and uh, you know again some were exposed to quite quite terrible dangers on for non-minimal pay um and uh, again there's there's large groups of people but again it's it's um there's an interesting kind of transnational migration although it wasn't transnational at that point in terms of you get a lot of um navvies being irish um so again kind of it's it's the sort of labor that unfortunately that was deemed suitable uh at this time so 1830s 1840s what was available as well and people willing to do it on relatively low wages because there wasn't much else going on uh both in ireland or in britain so for for them yeah it's just a hard slog was it i mean you're literally carving out the countryside yeah, yeah. To, to lay yeah. track um, absolutely so yeah i always think that when you see a when you see a rail line go through a really steep hill or you know for a tunnel i always think i wonder whether this is an old line and and if so it would have been built by hand that's incredible really yeah I, it's the tunnels always that you just think that's i mean they're less visible in some respects obviously because they're underground um but you've got to get through the rock to do that um whereas uh, you know with the, the cuttings the embankments again they're, they're more visible in some respects because they are these great heaps of earth or or the, the dips um that again have by and large been shifted by hand um which is incredible effort and obviously very labor intensive yeah and am i right in thinking so I'm, I'm going back to my a-level history day so it's a long time ago um am i right in thinking that it was the railways that ended up bringing in uh, a shift in being paid weekly to being paid monthly so I remember doing, I remember being told that people who were being paid weekly, and I don't know, this is just an urban myth, that people that were being paid weekly were drinking their wages and therefore missing days of work because they 
they they were drunk so they shifted it to monthly so that they'd lose less days of people being hung over well, that's, that's interesting so again this, this kind of ties in more i don't know about that exactly and i'll come back to the railway element of this that one in a moment um but yeah i mean there was concern about um saint monday um being the the you know the day of day off because of the drinking on the weekend or on the sunday because the weekend still included saturdays of work at that point um but again yes there's there is certainly some thought that is tied in with uh, industrialization and a uh, kind of more disciplined use of time. Um, as to the railways and weekly versus monthly, again, it, it depends rather on what role. Um, so, think, yeah, thinking about the, the wages then, monthly versus weekly, it depends a bit on the role. Um, some people still were paid, some people still paid daily on the railways, again, labouring type jobs at casual labouring um, but yeah weekly wages uh, for the, the more manual grades and then uh, monthly for the more kind of middle ranking and upwards managerial wages so kind of salaried wages so again is there, there's always sort of neat class differentials um, both between what you know working classes and middle classes but also within class boundaries as well that, uh, that some would some deemed important okay and um, other like you know pop history fact <laughs> was it was it railways that brought about the introduction of a standardized system of time you know Greenwich Mean Time oh fun yeah okay brilliant it's, I just last night was um a friend in Canada invited me in to talk to his class about some work that I've done on exactly this and it was lovely they're a great class and you know that that came up because yes this this is it when you've got um when you're covering large distances and this is in kind of UK terms obviously it, Last night, a caveat: the Canadian terms; these are not large distances. But in, in the UK terms, you know, large distances, say from London to Penzance or London up to Birmingham, or, or um, again, it's it's the east-west differences that are important. When you're doing that by coach, and it takes days to make a journey, you know, five minutes here and there, ten minutes is less important. When you're doing it in a number shorter, much shorter period, a number of hours then actually the time difference is important, um, particularly for safety reasons. So you, you don't want to be, again, in, in the 1830s, 1840s, when we've got early versions of um, how trains were controlled on the tracks, you don't want to be setting one off uh, at one location at one time and then off at another location the other time and finding meat in the middle. Um, so, yeah, the, the standardisation of time, you start seeing it in the 1830s, but really 1840s, um, forget when I think it's 18 uh, it's either 1860s or 1880s that we get um genuinely fully standardized time um but it is it's a kind of operational um demand effectively from from the railways and um what sort of speed talking about time what, what sort of speed were the trains traveling at in the 1840s then were they, were they fast which, <laughs> well, yeah Def, well okay I was gonna say it depends which train you catch uh, and it did yeah. But, and the, which is a slightly less silly comment than, than it may seem, because obviously you might think, well, an express train's gonna be quicker than a, a slow train, or a, what was called a stopping train that stopped at every station. Well, yes, it was, but there's even one that's slower than that, effectively, I'll come back to that. Um, everything's gonna look fast compared to horse travel mm. um, or coach travel or, or canal travel. So um, yes, obviously there are great, people have concerns in, in the 1830s about the kind of the dangers of traveling at, at railway sorts of speeds. And we're talking, you know, 12 miles an hour, 20 miles an hour, things that nowadays obviously wouldn't seem that dramatic to us because of course we're so used to it. And with changes in technology, a particular motor car, these are just kind of everyday sorts of, of things. At the time, they would really have been quite dramatic uh, for people, particularly people, passengers uh, experiencing them. You know, there, there were, concerns about well if you if you have people traveling on a train at speed through a tunnel will they all be suffocated because the train pushes the air out of the way and there's no air for them to breathe which again you know it seems ludicrous to us now but no, it's quite logical kind of, yeah it is in a kind of if you can kind of think to well this would have been something that people just wouldn't have experienced so it's, it's kind of natural that they, they've got these concerns and fears um just to, to, to come back to that comment about the you know what, what would have seemed fast or slow there was concern in the 1830s and into the 1840s about the railway companies were basically you know, private companies they are in it to make money. They've got shareholders. Um, they've had tremendous costs in you know, building the lines and building all the, the locomotives and coaches and stock that you need to run it and the staff and so on. 
Um, so there's concern that they're out to make money and which meant then that there was there was unequal access to rail transport. Um, so the middle class is fine, upper class is fine, working class is less so in some situations. Um, so the, the government stepped in and said, well, every company has to run um, what's called a parliamentary train, uh, which is just one a day, but on, on every route that offers very cheap fares, I think a penny a mile. Um, which would, you know, was cheaper than the, your other fares otherwise. Um, uh, so the railway companies obviously gnashed their teeth and didn't like that. And you find them doing all sorts of kind of pretty nasty dodges, you know, putting the, the parliamentary train on at two o'clock in the morning so that they can say they've run it. But of course, it's not a time when anyone wants to use it because um, they want to keep the money coming in. So Some things there never is, change. Uh, no, well, indeed. <laughs> you know, it's, change, it's yeah. you know, those trains were very slow trains as well because, again, it discouraged people from, from using them. Okay, okay. Um, so could you, uh, you, you talk about the safety um, and the kind of the, the, the worries about the speed of the trains, but obviously working on the trains was really, working on railways was very dangerous. Um, I know from having looked at your website, okay, could you tell me a little bit about the Railway Work Life and Death Project? Yeah, sure. Actually, can I can I um, kind of just stop for a moment and say, well, actually, there's a really interesting contrast that's quite important to make. And it happens that, that we're talking today on the 26th of January 2021. And the reason I give the date is it's the, the 100th anniversary of the Abba Mule uh, disaster, where two trains met head on on a single uh, single track line. Um, so there's an enormous collision. There's a signalling mixed up, which put the, track, the, the trains on the same track. They shouldn't have been able to do it. All sorts of problems that meant that they did big crash um, and uh, I think 17 people died and a number were injured 26 possibly um, so you know, we kind of we have this idea about the, the big uh, passenger crashes which are very dramatic and you know when you've got uh, newspaper reporting and so on there's you know, headline news and it's a big concern in the 19th century about public safety uh, the difficult thing is that they're actually quite rare. They were quite rare then, they're even rarer now, fortunately. Um, so when they happen, they're big news and they tend to happen in spaces that, that people can get to, the press can get to, to make engravings from or take photographs of later. Um, so they're, they're spectacular. What you don't see much of is the, the staff accidents because they, they kind of happen in ones and twos, they're not very spectacular, out of the way spaces. Um, so just thinking about Abermule, um, so for 1921, we know that for every passenger uh, who was killed or injured on uh, Britain's railways, uh, six workers were killed or injured. So we kind of get some sense of the proportions there, and it was, it was much worse in the 19th century uh, in terms of the, the statistics. Um, so kind of the workers are really interesting kind of way that we can get into all sorts of different uh, issues, particularly you know, about class and you know, who's, who's deemed important, who's not, about culpability, responsibility and so on. So there's all sorts of fascinating things to say, uh, but they're also, the workers have been largely invisible, which is where the Railway Work Life and Death project <laughs> came about. Um, so we're a collaboration between the, my institution, the University of Portsmouth and the National Railway Museum and the Modern Record Centre at the University of Warwick. And we've been, with, uh, we're working with the National Archives of the UK as well, which has been brilliant. And you know, the support from each of these institutions and the volunteers working on the project, and it's it's a you know, huge thank you to all of the volunteers, um, both who've been doing transcription work, but also researching uh, individual cases, um, and people who've been contributing um, blogs and information to us as we've been going along, because we've been finding out so much more about staff who've been in, involved in accidents. Um, we came about because we knew that there was, there was a huge body of material, um, accident reports, that gave us some details of not certainly not all of the, the workers involved in accidents, but but some of them um, that people don't really know about and researchers couldn't really get hold of very easily. You can go to well, pre-COVID, you could go to the institutions to look at the the records if you knew they existed, but they were, they were never indexed. So if you're looking for a particular person or a particular location, you know it's a needle in the haystack job really. Look and see what you find. Whereas what we've been trying to do is is transcribe those. Um, individuals and, and the details that the accident reports contain and make them available through the project website uh, so that people can download the, the details and uh, find out more that, that might interest them, whether it's about family history, local history, 
it's academic, whether it's people in the current rail industry, you know, whoever, the, hopefully we're creating a really useful resource for people. It is a brilliant project and I, I'd really encourage anyone who's tracing their family history um, and finds a railway ancestor to even if you haven't found a railway ancestor yet because I'd check your surname because you might find that you have got a railway ancestor uh, yeah. in between census years for example so yeah I would definitely um, check. Absolutely yeah, that's that's been one of the really really heartwarming things about the project you know, we started off just with the National Railway Museum and their team of volunteers who by and large come at it from the railway side of things so they, you know, they're brilliant in terms of technical knowledge uh, and so on, and, and interest and ability to kind of dig at the railway side of things. But what's been great as we've expanded is um, and made more and more cases available publicly. We've got about six and a half thousand cases at the moment, but we're working on on uh, it's about another thirty thousand cases that we're working on on making available. Hopefully this year, uh, due across the course of the year, um, because we want to make sure that the you know, we've got the data clean so it's all you know we know it's sound and it's it's all good and there aren't any any errors in there um that, that we've had contacts from people who said oh i found my great grandfather in there um and you know here's a bit more about him uh, or whoever and it, it's what's what's been wonderful is is when you know we've, we've had that discussion with people and they come back and you know after a bit of to and fro said well you know, really interesting story it's a very everyday story in some respects which i always think makes it more interesting um but but would you, you know, would you be willing to to put something together for us a, a blog post for for the website and i think in all bar one case they said oh yeah that'd be that'd be really nice you know it'd be good to, to you know make sure people know more a bit about my grandfather john or whatever um and and yeah we've we've come out with some really really interesting stuff and what's also been great i should just kind of fly this flag again for this this collaborative ideal is that that you know we come at this from more of the kind of the railway side of things when we've got family historians coming into it we start to get more coming together when we get local historians coming into it again we get different perspectives on the same sorts of things and we're each used to using different sorts of sources and material so whereas, as I say, we come with the railway accidents, but then family historians bring all of the sources and the, you know, they use quite, use quite a, a brilliant variety of sources as well. Um, so coming in, bringing that in, and we get much more of the personal side of, of the story about the person. So it's, you know, that's, that's been really, really interesting. Okay. Yeah, I, it, is, it is a brilliant project and I love reading the blog posts. Um, it, it, I think we all like to share our stories really so it's a great excuse to share your own story um so from from the work that the railway work life and death project has done um what would you say have you kind of come to any conclusions about what the most dangerous jobs were so yeah definitely um it's what what we see is and we would expect this the manual um occupations are the most dangerous ones here. Yeah, they're, they're the roles where people, and by and large, it's men, are exposed to more dangers. So this would be uh, what were known as plate layers. So the people um, maintaining the tracks um, because they're working in and amongst moving trains more often than not. So uh, to, uh, sometimes it doesn't often happen, but sometimes you have um, you know a gang of men. Uh, you know, there's, there's one uh, working together and when a, if a train runs into them, you have large numbers of people being mm -hmm. killed or injured, um, which is you know, tragic when it happens. Again, I'm just thinking now there's a there's another anniversary coming up, which won't be marked in the same way that Abba Mule today will be marked. Um, but another one that, that was in 1921, Stapleton Road, just a part in a Bristol suburb now, um, where a gang of plate layers were, were hit and I think five were killed and three injured in a single go. Um, which won't be known because it's kind of again it just it isn't the thing that's that's kind of under, understood known about remembered these days um so yeah plate layers definitely uh goods guards so the guards on on freight trains um, because they had to get out of the trains when they get to each station to uncouple or couple the wagons um and they're you know, again when things are moving around them that you know, one slip you go underneath the wagon and, and that's it unfortunately um and trying to think what else would be in there, but lots of things involving goods handling. Um, so again, it's kind of, it's heavy physical work and uh, you're in and amongst, you're in a, uh, what was a very dangerous environment. Yeah. Yeah, I was just thinking as you were talking there that I have some plate layer ancestors. So it's, it's really interesting to know that they were, you know, that if they weren't injured, then they were actually remarkably lucky really. Um, and so when did so with all these accidents going on um when did when did companies start 
recording the accidents or, or even investigating them? What was the kind of attitude towards them and how did that change? Uh, yeah, yeah, brilliant questions. Um, so passenger accidents, just takes back to passenger accidents, again, just kind of to highlight the difference. Uh, the government stepped in and said from 1840, right, we're going to set up a, a particular bit of the border trade um, because, again, these are commercial concerns, so they come under border trade um governance uh, so we're going to set up a, a railway inspectorate to go and uh, initially to make sure that lines are safe to open but they very quickly uh, take on a, an investigative function for passenger train crashes so all passenger train crashes since 1840 have been investigated um, again producing a, a huge body of reports which are, are very useful to us um, the workers didn't fare quite so well so they were the, their accidents the companies railway companies were supposed to report those accidents to the rail inspectorate but by and large didn't so before 1870 you get some really kind of marginal statistics uh, you know where they say oh yeah we, we've had three deaths this year and you think mm, that doesn't sound convincing at all for a company of that size and, um uh, then the government basically are, are forced to step in and, and set up an investigation about accidents so uh um, Royal Commission. Uh, when it eventually reports, uh, there's another one um, that you get the report in 1877, and they say, well, we, you need companies must report accidents to workers. That improves things. It's still not complete compliance. By the time you get into the 1890s, you do have much better, uh, much more reliable reports. You know, a death is kind of hard not to report because it's, it's very obvious when you've had a fatality. Um, injuries, they're much more marginal sometimes um, because you know there are a large number of, of very small injuries um, so there, there's some kind of debate about how many get reported how many don't and particularly when the, the regs I think initially say well you've got to be off work for seven days before you have to report the accident so obviously quite a lot of the small cases that were still important uh, don't meet that criteria um, so the 1890s onwards really you get really good government accident reports and the railway companies, um, again, because kind of, railway companies are meticulous record keepers. What we've got now remaining is a fraction of the, the paperwork they produced. So things like staff registers, for example, um, you know, there were so many of them that, that it wasn't possible. I mean, again, the, the railway companies were working organisations. They kept the registers and like the accident reports as well for as long as they were useful and then binned them when they weren't. Yeah. So what we, what we got into preservation um, is a very small percentage of, of what actually existed. Uh, but they, the company start to take much better note of um, worker accidents from 1897 when the Workmen's Compensation Act comes in, which means that effectively, in, in most cases, the railway companies automatically uh, pay compensation to workers who've been injured or their dependents if they've been killed um, after an accident. So that's, you know, that's quite useful for us uh, as a project and as historians to, as, a, as a source. Um, because it gives, it gives us a slightly different take on things. So before that 1897 act where we, we had to be uh, compensated, what what happened if you had an accident and um, and it affected your well, ability to work or to earn the same money as you were before? Yeah. So again, this this is a really interesting one. It's kind of two slightly two pronged approach, and it's it's basically it's down to the goodwill of the companies. Um, now, the companies did see themselves as, as paternalistic employers, so they're very much, you know, we are the benevolent father figures and we look after our children who are the you, you hapless working classes and, you know, can't look after yourselves. Um, I exaggerate, but only slightly. Um, and uh, they would, there was a feeling um, that it's kind of part of the deal of working. If you were injured, um, the, the railway company would try and find you a, a suitable replacement job. If you couldn't go back to your initial occupation and again you know for people who goods guards say who, who might lose an arm or a leg at work you know that's going to make that that job which is very physical very difficult to do so they'd be found another role often as a uh, something like a level crossing keeper or a ticket collector um so much less arduous uh, although still demanding in its own ways just got this like vision of all these one-armed and one-legged ticket inspectors up and down the country because well, it's, you know it's really interesting because because there must have been large numbers of people you know just looking at the numbers and we do have reasonable statistics on how many people were injured in, in what sorts of ways there must have been large numbers of people who had lost limbs and who were found some other employment but again finding records and details about them uh, again, it's, it's part of this this issue about erasing disabled people from the past. You know, kind of they're, they're not being seen. 
Um, so finding that documentary record can be quite challenging. Um, although, again, there are some really interesting kind of elements of that. And we've we've had a brilliant, I should just say, we've had a brilliant guest post uh, from on the project blog about a one-armed um, station master. He lost his arm uh, in a shunting accident, so moving goods wagons around in the 1860s. And he popped up in our um, records in the 90, just before, when was it, about 1911, 1912, I think, um, still still employed, but as a station master, where he inadvertently could have come to this, he couldn't do the job that he was doing normally. So he had a, as, in, as, as if he had two arms. So he had a kind of a, a, a workaround that he'd set up, but unfortunately it caused another accident, a very slight oh, no. one. So he suddenly appears in the records there. And um, what we, you know, we found this kind of really brief mention about this. And we're like, well, how did he lose his arm? We didn't know. And then uh, it was a, a family and local historian who uh, had ancestors in the place where this accident had uh, taken place, a place called Pont. Pondogo, uh, which I probably mangle badly, it's, it's actually just down the line from Abba Mule, thinking of, of the connections with today. Um, and he, you know, he'd done this amazing bit of research and uh, blog post for us, uh, basically going into, well, look, here's the detail, here's where we've got, here's how we know when the accident happened, um, here's some more information, here's a reference that we've got to the one-armed station master here, which is this man, and here's some photographs that we found through these other sources, you know, absolutely tremendous. <laughs> Um, but, but, you know, again, the photographs, just think about visualising, you know, very, very concrete sense, visualising disability. There you go. Um, it's it's there. So these people must have been very common as, as part of the workforce, um, but yet we don't see them um, yeah. much. So, again, it's kind of all sorts of interesting things that kind of sneak out of this. Yeah, I find that really interesting as well, that, that he, he he found a workaround, that he found a, a way of um, doing the same job differently um, because of his disability. And then that, that brings in a whole other type of history, doesn't it, on, on that kind of um, adaptability and um, what tools and techniques people used. So, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the, I should just say as well, just thinking about how workers and, and uh, the dependents coped after if it was a, a fatality. The other way is effectively kind of going cap in hand to the railway company and saying, listen, my husband's just been killed. Please, could you pay for his funeral costs? And they would, you know, they would write to the board of directors of particular companies. Again, it's, it's always tragic to see it. Um, but you do find letters in there or, or it's, it's notes, in, minutes in meetings. So it's kind of it's not, unfortunately, the, the letter which would have given the detail and, and that kind of really direct connection. But you do see it. And, you know, typically, it's just kind of a you know, request from Mrs. X for uh, funeral costs for her husband who was killed in a shunting accident at this location on our company. Ten pounds granted. Um, and and that, that's it. Um, that's that's a, kind of the reference. The other side, for, for the particularly for uh, injured workers who, who've lost limbs, they will um, come and ask the company, say, "Well, let you, could I have an artificial limb, please? Um, could you could you either pay for one or manufacture one in your workshops?" And again, some of the railway companies, the bigger railway companies, had um, workshops within their railway factories that that were dedicated to making artificial limbs. Good um, lord, really? Because they went, they obviously went through so many of them. Um, wow. so it's, yeah. and it, again it's, it, this is the kind of the thing it's this was just an everyday kind of accepted part that there will be accidents workers will be killed and injured this isn't anything out of the ordinary and the railway companies sadly were quite blasé about it i think uh and saying so well that's just a risk inherent in a job rather than perhaps thinking a bit more proactively about what can we change about this job uh, to, and again you know the cynic in me says well one of the reasons why they don't think very actively about what can we change about the job is because it costs money. If you yeah. need to employ more people to do a job that then makes it safer, or you need to, to bring a new piece of machinery in or uh, provide some personal protective equipment, um, uh, that, that, you know, that costs money and the, the, they're about the bottom line. Yeah, I mean, that, that, is, that is pretty horrifying that it's cheaper and more cost effective to have a workshop making artificial limbs than to change your working practices but I, I suppose to put it in context you know where other companies you know I'm thinking the big mills where they have lots of accidents and coal mining were they any safer really I mean by comparison so again it's really interesting though there, there is a, an inquiry by the time you get to the um, late 1890s the, the trade unions have been gathering pace uh, they start in the 1870s uh, on the railways in, in earnest and there they 
1890s are really pushing the railway companies on uh, employee safety because uh, you know we're seeing you know 1900 i think 16,000 workers were injured or killed in a single year um, and that figure's on the rise these are large numbers of people and it's becoming increasingly difficult to ignore so the railway companies are pushing them the government says right we'll, we'll have an investigation kind of the classic government's uh, government response so they, they set up a royal commission and as part of that they take evidence um, from workers managers or trade unions all sorts um, connected with the railway industry but part of that they look they do look to other industries and they say that some you know if you take all railway workers then it's actually comparatively safe but this gets back to get that question about well, which workers which grades which roles are more dangerous if you took um say shunters uh, so again the, the people who are responsible for coupling and uncoupling goods wagons in particular um if you took their role that was slightly less dangerous than uh, merchant marine so merchant merchant shipping uh, or coal mining uh, for those occupations underground in coal mines so it's you know this is one of the uh, these some of these roles are, are some of the most dangerous roles in britain at at this time so it's you know which is never a great comparison to to have made is it the, the, no. you know, this is where you don't want to be world leading um, yeah. No, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing presumably um, they took more of an interest in in improving things when, uh, as more and more people got the vote, you know, as, as more and more working class, and after 1918 when all men had the vote. It's so. What's interesting about this is it's kind of there are all sorts of dynamics uh, at play. So the period up to the First World War, the railway companies are under intense pressure, both from the, the growing power of the, the trades unions and their representatives in Parliament. So you see more working class MPs being elected um, and, and including several railway, uh, railwaymen MPs. Um, so that's, you know, that's really important because then they've got a, a very visible political voice, um, albeit not, you know, not, still not masses of power, but other bits where the railway companies kind of dodged responsibility start to decline. So they did have kind of some say in Parliament um, because they had you know, um, friend, effectively friendly MPs who would kind of neuter legislation that was threatened. Um, the the railway companies weren't doing very well financially as well in the, in the lead up to the First World War. So there was kind of real pressure on, on dividends and, and so on. So there are kind of all sorts of different directions from which kind of economically, politically, socially, the railway companies are under pressure to do something about worker safety. So, yeah, that's, you know, this is all part of the same, the same story. So when they when they did start to um, investigate the accidents in 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 earnest, what what kind of how would they investigate it? What what kind of things would they do? Well, you're asking all the tough questions today. <laughs> um, yeah, so this we don't know tons about the investigation process because it's kind of one of those things that seems to have happened, but there the, no instructions were left behind um, and so on. I think it's I suspect it's one of these kind of assumed things that everyone just knows how to do it. So you just do it and you, know, you learn from the previous the person who's doing it before you what we do know is that the there are two types of investigation that take place the railway companies would have their investigation and that would often happen very quickly um you know within a couple of days of of the accident and it i suspect would be quite cursory um again it's a, perhaps not surprising that the about 90 percent of the time i think they they come out and say oh it's a rail it was the employee's fault uh, they're doing something they shouldn't have been doing. They, they broke the rules, um, which, yes, doesn't come as a massive surprise because then that means, of course, that, that the railway companies don't need to change anything um, if it was employees' fault. Uh, the the um, state inspector, so the railway inspectorate, um, would hold an investigation. Now, quite how they decided what to investigate, I don't know, because they were they started appointing inspectors um, who were dedicated to doing employee accidents in 1892. Um, but there were only, I think, two to start with. Uh, and they had, you know, these these kind of 10, 15,000 worth of accidents a year to, to cover. So they had to make a choice about which ones to do. Um, they only covered about 3% of all accidents, actually investigated them um, as, as time went on. So they kind of, we get a tiny fraction of what was actually happening. I think they did the same sort of thing. They, they went to a location and asked people, you know, looked at the, the physical site, asked those who were involved. What's quite interesting is occasionally you get in some of the accident reports, um, so these are the kind of the, the short, the written up versions of these investigations, um, you get a reference, oh, I couldn't interview so-and-so because he'd been, he'd left the company's employee. Um, so, you know, he'd either been sacked or had walked away before this investigation. 
Um, by the time you get into the First World War, you get a couple where they say, we couldn't talk to this person because they've gone off, they joined the colours, so they've gone off to fight uh, in the war. So there's kind of all sorts of different things going do you, on. Do you think they got, do you think they did backhanders, you know? Or they just... I, don't, I don't think so. And I don't think they needed to, because it, okay. uh, again, what's, what's, what's interesting about this is I think the, the accident investigators and the railway companies thought in, so the state accident investigators and the railway companies thought in similar sorts of way. The kind of, my impression is very much that they, the, the state's accident investigators were, um, some of them, we, know, we don't know much about who they, kind of what their backgrounds, where they came from, uh, other than in, we think in the railway industry. And in some cases, I think one case we know is kind of middle management from one company. So the chances are they probably thought in the same sort of way. And that sort of way was, oh, well, it's worker carelessness. Okay. And so that's kind of what, what they were looking for. So they didn't have, you know, the companies didn't have to uh, do anything truly nefarious to get the result that they wanted because that was just natural isn't it that, that, that all these workers are doing these silly things because of, of their you know they just don't understand okay. um, rather than you know, what's what's really interesting is talk, talking with those in the current industry um, now the presumption is that they will look at all other factors before they come to a conclusion that it, it was something to do with the worker so they will say you know, could we have made this mode of operation more safe could we have uh whether did we ask this person to work hours that were too long what was going on you know other around them at the time uh, and so on so the kind of all these things and they say the very last thing they will look at is is it the worker themselves because there are so many other factors that come into play so at least there's been a change you you make a good point there as well there about um uh how long had the had the uh, employee have we made them work too long because obviously back in sort of 1897 you know presumably they were doing longer hours than we are today um yeah, at, yes. at very physical jobs so yeah very much so again what's what's really interesting in that contrast between the passenger facing roles and the 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 staff roles is that in 1892 you get an act of parliament which uh, 1893 you get an act of parliament which limits the hours that um safety critical roles safety critical for passenger trains or for train movements uh so signalmen um, and, and again, at this point, they were all signal men um, that limited the number of hours they could work. So they didn't want signalers falling asleep in the signal box or being distracted because they, they were tired and working long shifts. Um, particularly when you get to you know, the, the, the bigger locations with huge signal boxes, you've got things going on all the time, um, noise, distraction. Uh, so you need to be on your game with that. Otherwise, you, you are going to make a mistake. People did, tragically. Um, again, Abermule, uh, although a tiny place, uh, was was one example of, of lots going on at once and and kind of slightly irregular procedures, incredibly irregular procedures, causing a problem. Um, whereas other other the kind of the the, the staff roles where the, there are greater accidents, so things like the the track workers, uh, the shunters, the goods guards, and so on, um, you don't have that same kind of impact on passenger services. So there's there's not such tight regulation. So yeah, they are working 10 12 hour days as standard um that's reduced to 10 hours i think in uh 1919 or was it eight hours um it's been a while since i thought about that uh but yeah there's a shortening in 1919 of, i think it might be eight hours actually a working day um but uh even then you get cases where people work you know, excessive hours so there's one one case I'm thinking of that was on on the Isle of Wight from 1915. So wartime conditions were involved, uh, but they had a worker who'd been on duty for nearly 32 hours before he had his accident. And we think, well, it's going to happen, isn't it? Um, it was, if you're working that long without a, a proper rest. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's crazy. So how did they decide did they, did they kind of bear those kind of factors in in mind when they um compensated people how did they decide how much compensation somebody should get it was so after 1897 it was effectively a standard kind of a, a quota um you know you got extra fatality um i'm trying to think what it was now i've got a feeling it was in there kind of about 300 pound mark um and then you know various forms of disablement if you if you lost two limbs it would be this much if you lost one limb this okay. much if you lost your sight in both eyes this much and there was a, a relatively standard kind of format um there if if you're a union member you um and you've been paying into particular funds you might get a, a death benefit which is a small one-off payment uh, or you know, your family would um or again if, if you um have been paying into the right funds uh 
you might get some sort of a kind of weekly top up if, uh, from the disablement um, disabled fund uh, as well. So the kind of other other sources of, of financial support that might come into play, uh, but by no means common, uh, you know, universal. That's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting they didn't do it on a case by case basis with a sort of sliding scale or anything. They just kind of went, "This is this is what it is." Um, I think again, it's it, that's a product of the fact there are so so many and uh, cases, and they just you know if they'd done it genuinely case by case, I suspect they did, but I suspect it was a real kind of a glance at it and go, "Right, yeah, that that one's clearly this much." Um, because otherwise, if we had to go through everything and really think about, well, what did this person earn? What do they need? What does their family need? Now it would have taken forever. Yeah, sure. Sadly. So we, we mentioned um, uh, women earlier. What, what kind of roles were women doing on the railway? What kind of jobs were they employed in? Uh, so it, again, it changes over time. Um, you've got some from, from the early days, 1830s, 1840s, uh, gatekeepers, um, you said crossing keepers. So they, they would um, open and close the gates across railway lines for either uh, foot, foot crossings or um, road crossings. For example, again, kind of it was it very much looked down upon, um, which is again one of the reasons why, if workers were injured, they ended up with that role. It's kind of it's something fitting for a disabled member of staff. Um, uh, you get then kind of in, in kind of classic gendered roles, so um, serving staff in restaurants or hotel spaces, um, seamstresses, uh, laundresses. Uh, and so on because again you know the, the, the railway companies are doing all these things themselves so if they're running hotels if they're um, washing uh, anything that's coming in and out of uh, carriages um, so antimacassars and so on uh, you know that's that then would be done by women you see some changes in the first world war and second world war where they start to i'm not going to say open up but the women are uh, involved in different roles so engine cleaning um, again not not driving um, that's that's not on um, so you, uh, and other uh, kind of more factory based roles as well some the National Railway Museum's got some great photographs of um, uh, women workers at Doncaster um, railway workshops riveting and uh, welding and so on from the Second World War so there's all sorts of answer in fact some nice ones from the First World War of um, women driving cranes uh, at Doncaster as well so again these kind of you know, heavy demanding jobs that were acceptable in wartime but less so out of wartime were they safer jobs were there less accidents in those kind of roles there are gut instinct says probably because again it's you're, you're being exposed to less of the sorts of dangers that has serious have serious consequences if something goes wrong that said there's also a question about well how far were women's accidents reported or recorded um i, I should say you know carriage cleaning is another classic um, you know, the classic example of, of women's roles um, but there that one's quite interesting because you do see some fatalities um, taking place because again they're, they're in and amongst moving um, trains okay um, so yeah I, my, my inclination is that I, I suspect that a lot of the sorts of things that, that happen here probably schools or burns for example in, in laundry spaces uh, weren't reported or weren't investigated um, because it uh, was a scold neither here nor there whereas obviously it could be quite dramatic particularly in the age before penicillin uh or blood poisoning um if it's a really open thing could could be fatal i don't bear thinking about really does it no no <laughs> on a cheerier note what yeah. is the <laughs> that's okay what is the um what is the future for the railway work life and death project what, what's next um, so we're working on um, the brilliant work that volunteers are doing and getting that out to the public. We still got records at the National Archives and the Modern Record Centre, so railway uh, company records and the trade union records that we're working on transcribing. There's, there's plenty of them to go, probably at least another 30,000, we think. Um, after that, yeah, great question. And I think it's partly it's what what I would dearly love to do is at the moment we are making information available, but it's by no means complete. What we'd love to do is, is uh, produce a facility. It can be done technically, it's just we don't have time or money, sadly, to do it, um, uh, whereby people can send us details about uh, accidents that happened to you know, their family members, say, in the past. Um, 
so we can learn more again about the people, about the accidents that weren't uh, investigated as well, because this, this, you know, we've had lots of offers of, of further detailed information about cases that don't yet appear in the database um, because there wasn't an official investigation. Um, so you know that that sort of thing, kind of capturing that, and again showing how widely the railway industry both had an impact, but also um, how many people have railway ancestors. Uh, and again, how commonplace accents were would be would be absolutely fascinating. So kind of capturing that more personal side of things. Um, it's a little way off, but I, I would dearly love to see that happen. I think it'd be really positive, kind of positive way of working with other people as well. No, no, me too. I've, I've found quite a few instances. It seems like every time I open a newspaper to look for one of my own ancestors, I seem to stumble across some reporting of some accident involving a railway worker. Um, you know yeah I don't, yeah I don't I don't know whether that's I'm not sure why it, it's reported in the paper necessarily when it isn't wasn't necessarily investigated but there does seem to be I quite often well, find little snippets that's I mean what that's one of the things that, that would be really wonderful to see we've been talking a little bit with the British Library about this because the newspaper collections there about being able to bring in that sort of information because you're right local newspapers are absolutely a, a goldmine for this sort of particularly for fatalities and particularly where there's a report about the coroner's inquest um, because those for England and Wales those records don't uh, very rarely still exist so you get not quite verbatim uh, reports or transcriptions of the coroner's inquest proceedings but really good ones so you get a lot of detail and you kind of you start to get a bit more information about not only what happened but the, the people involved and the other people the witnesses um, for fatalities uh, but yeah local newspapers are absolutely brilliant for that and we'd love to be able to again to, to link the sources to marry them up so you get a much richer picture of what happened the people involved the impacts that the accident had um, yeah I had an ancestor that was a carman and I think what he was doing is he was um, collecting goods from the railway on a horse and cart to take them mm -hmm. to take them elsewhere and he had an accident um, on on the cars um, but that got picked up by a newspaper report and it was that that told me all oh, you know that's what he was I knew he was Carmen but that could be you know it could mm. be anything um, and that's what then led me to realize that he was you know at least some of the time working for the for um not necessarily for the railways but attached to that industry you know um yeah absolutely no that's you're, you're right and just to kind of I should should say that although for what we're doing most of the people who crop up in the accident reports are railway workers by no means all are because lots of different people had access to the railway spaces and some of the dangerous spaces like goods yards you know yes you're right carters timber merchants coal merchants um, all needed to go into those spaces to move goods and they sometimes had accidents there so they appear in in the records we get sadly we get children of uh, either of workers or often of merchants who are messing around near the railway and end up having an accident so we do have some some quite some surprisingly young cases coming up um and you know farmers needing to cross the railway lines for example as part of their work so there's there's all sorts of people that crop up in unexpected perhaps unexpected ways that that uh we find yeah yeah, I'm not, I'm, I'm not surprised. The um, I was just going back to the newspapers slightly as well when they're, they're reporting. I think my top tip to anyone tracing their family history is always to go search newspaper records. I mean, I found I found a, a little article about my ancestor when he was aged 87 because he fell off a ladder and sprained his wrist. And it was literally two sentences and they must have been having a slow news day. But you think you think now when you watch the news sometimes and there'll be that little segment about, you know, extra large bunny in Berkshire yeah. has like, you know, and finally, yeah, yeah, and it's clearly just it is a slow news day, and they're just you know mm. padding padding it out. Like I, I guess that happened when they were writing newspapers as well. I love absolutely. You know, I love I love local newspapers in particular because they are you know they're they're so good for that sort of really everyday stuff. You know, this is this is a, the thing, and some of my other work has touched on that uh, the wonders of the mundane that because these are so typical experiences um that actually they're more significant than in some ways than you know the big wars and the big political moments um which you know relatively few people are involved in determining and and uh, taking an active part in whereas the sorts of things that, that is, are reported in local newspapers the railway accident happening are affecting thousands tens of thousands hundreds of thousands of people over uh, you know over time so it's you know thinking about these everyday things 
uh, be they accidents or other, are, I think is really important because we get this kind of much deeper connection with with everyday life and the, the things that our ancestors, uh, those before us, would have been doing, experienced, seen, and so on. And talking of newspapers, what 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 was the kind of public reaction, if any, to to accidents? You know, to to workers getting injured in accidents. Um, well, relatively small, it seems. Um, again, I mean, the, as you know, they do the accidents do appear in them, and particularly when you get these these bigger accidents. I mentioned the, the Stapleton Road accident. You know, there is press coverage of that, local uh, and I think national, uh, because it's so unusual and there are so many people involved. Um, but you get you know, you get your news reports. It's difficult then to kind of to get much back from it in terms of well, do we find letters in talking about this sometimes you do but but not so much again there's all sorts of issues there about well what are the editors uh, or the editorial team selecting to print as part of the letters so what are we actually getting you know it might have been they had millions of people writing in but they didn't they, it didn't fit the kind of slant or the news of the day so they left them all out um so you know there are problems what in terms of what we can draw from that but um yeah it's it's a difficult one capturing oh i should say one thing one brilliant way of capturing what people were thinking um, that I, actually, I probably shouldn't say this because I don't want a competition on eBay, but um, I've, I've, I've gone back to eBay, which is a terrible, terrible thing. But postcards, exactly. It's the postcards. Um, but they're, they're absolutely brilliant. You know, the um, disaster and accident postcards that were produced typically in a run up to the First World War are a goldmine, again, of, of responses to it, because you get sometimes you get the, the you know, a railway accident, a big railway accident pictured and they tend to be the passenger accidents or they're not exclusively. Um, on, on one side and on the other side you, you sometimes you get a message saying oh, I walked over to see the crash site you know what a terrible spectacle so you, you get this kind of sense of someone's actually been there I, I found a great one of um, someone who uh, there's a picture of a wrecked carriage at Cromer there's a big um, uh, passenger crash there in 1905 and on the back of it they say I was in this carriage very shaken um, but uh, basically unharmed you think this is incredible and you know there isn't any reason why this person should lie you know this is this it's from the time um, well, maybe there is some reason why they lie, but I'm I'm kind of I'm quite happy I'm happy enough with that one. Um, so you kind of get these these kind of really quite direct responses to it, saying you know I knew the person the driver of this train, um, and sometimes you get some really quite unexpected messages on it, uh, like one again showing I think it was a passenger train crash. Um, uh, and on the back of it is having a lovely time on holiday. See you soon. Because that's, that's <laughs> what I'm going to send to mark my holiday. It's a disaster postcard. Um, so it's kind of this real kind of mismatch again, which I think speaks volumes to the way in which almost how commonplace accidents were in the past. That yeah, it's another accident. Oh well. Um, and but I've got other things like my holiday to be to be telling you about. So there's kind of real, really interesting kind of things that we get from the postcard. So much as I hate to to say it, I definitely say you know, look at postcards um, for responses to again everyday events i think that's a brilliant tip did you um do you find um do you get any instances of uh, of sort of colleagues of the worker kind of striking or anything like that you know sort of refusing to to work or work in the same way until something's resolved or is that quite rare um i can't think of you know, i have looked for that and uh, you know I'd, I'd expect to see a stronger response in the the trade union records they generally again it's a bit of a trick trade unions are a bit of a bind on how to deal with this believe it or not they were not massively keen on striking and the railway trade unions were some of the strongest at the, the turn of the 19th into 20th century um but they weren't massively keen on it because partly because they kind of this, this idea about demonstrating respectable trade unionism and, and working within the system so strike was really something of, of a last resort and it they'd much rather negotiate and, and bargain to get better working conditions um so yeah i don't i haven't found any instances i'm trying to i can't think of any instances where you know something particularly unsafe has happened and there has been a strike as a result of it oh, i, I find that really it's almost, I find that really interesting in itself because I I had kind of in my ignorance presumed presumed that people did uh, kind of strike a little bit more often or you know or almost mini strikes you know. Well, I think that's that's probably it. Is again, it's it's we got to think about the kind of political 
circumstances of the time and in, in from uh, 1905, I think, um, with the Taff Vale judgment, um, which is again about how trade unions can, uh, there's two cases, Taff Vale and Osborne judgment, about how the trade union can both strike and also uh, take political subscriptions and money from their members. Um, the, you know, the, the, the leanings of the government at the time uh, albeit still liberal, but were kind of conservatively inclined, as we'd conservative with a small c, as we'd understand it, um, meant that you know they're quite restrictive about what, what how unions could take strike actions. Um, so, and you, you don't want to be taking kind of effectively illegal strike action because that brings all sorts of problems. So, you know, it's as I say, kind of last resort, really serious issues, um, and doing things on a local basis. You do have wildcat strikes. Um, but I think they're almost, you know, these safety issues are almost so local that they're going to affect an individual uh, engine shed or um, goods yard or something like that. So it's kind of there aren't enough people to make a strike actually happen uh, okay. in those particular circumstances. Yeah, and presumably if it's only two or three workers refusing to work, they're quite easily replaced, aren't they? You know, so it has yeah. less impact. Okay. So last question then. <laughs> Give you a break because you've worked so hard. <laughs> um, if I was to find a railway ancestor, or if you were to find a railway ancestor, what, what, was, what would be the first thing you'd do to go and find out more about them or what their life was like? Um, I would, uh, that's a tough one. Um, I think I'd, I'd start the National Railway Museum because I think with the, again, particularly at the moment with the online content, you know, there's, there's such a, a breadth of material there, visual, uh, oral histories as well that even if you you would probably be unlikely to find something that relates directly to your ancestor but you will find something that tells you a bit about the role that they were doing and you can learn a lot about the kind of the general duties and the sorts of circumstances that they would have worked in through that so the, the National Railway Museum is a great starting point. And also it's got links then on to, to other sources of information, including the Railway Work Life and Death Project. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, Mike, thank you ever so much for your uh, time. I think you've given us some absolutely brilliant tips and um and, and advice and i uh i urge everyone to go and check out the railway work life and death project <laughs> thanks natalie it's been really fun if you enjoyed this video don't forget to hit subscribe or visit me at www.genealogystories.co.uk